know, I don't want to have somebody poke their head in. Um, or maybe you could prop it, if you could prop it open if anybody's really late. But um, So if you didn't get a sheet, I put one on the table when you walked in on the book of Jonah. We're up to Jonah. Uh, four ch- are we good, Stephen? I don't know. I can't see through the board. Um, four chapters, um, 48 verses, 1,320 words. The, if you want to go to Jonah 1.1. Again, we're just studying through the books of the Bible, one at a time. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. So Jonah is the author. Uh, it's written, the dates given is anywhere from 790 to 760 B.C. You know, people uh, disagree on that, but those are some of the accepted ones. You know, 790... 760 B.C. is kind of the timing. Um, And the book of Jonah is and has been relentlessly attacked by scoffers, by scholars, even by so-called people that are Bible people. They've attacked the authenticity and the legitimacy and the the literal nature of Jonah. They've tried to, to write it off as just an allegory or maybe just a dream. They say, why? Why such a vehement attack on the account of Jonah? I mean, we've, we've almost belittled it into a little story with the kids. We, oh, Jonah and the whale, you know, we'll make a cartoon out of it. And we'll like draw these Sunday school pictures with his like little whale, you know, like he just came off of an ice cream truck and he's like smiling with a little blowhole. You know, Jonah's like this. And it's like, you know, if you really think about what happened there, it's horrifying, it's vicious. But, you know, a lot of different ways that the, that the world has tried to downplay it. Why? Because the book of Jonah is all about the resurrection. <laughs> and it lays out the doctrine of the resurrection. And one of the greatest types of the resurrection is the account of Jonah. Jesus even said that. So it's not a surprise that that book would be vehemently attacked because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. Like every doctrine, every truth, every promise hangs on the fact that that tomb is empty and that tomb is not empty, we got a problem. Now, how do we know then, or how can we be comforted and reminded that the book of Jonah is authentic and to be taken as literal history that we could stake our souls on, okay? Number one, notice, now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. Number one, you know what Jonah's name means? It means dove. Jonah's name means dove. Do we know what dove is an emblem of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. It's not an accident that Jonah's name means dove, that Jonah's name means an emblem of the Holy Spirit. It's like right from jump, the Lord is reminding you, I'm not lying to you. I wouldn't lie to you. My Holy Spirit is telling you the truth in this book. Now let me give you some other things. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. And look at verse 25. In 2 Kings 14, 25, we see that Jonah was a historical figure. He's recorded in the history of Israel as a prophet. He's not a fable, he's not a fictional persona, he's not a figment of somebody's imagination. It says in 2 Kings 14.25, 
he's speaking of Jeroboam II, if you look at the previous verse, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. So Jonah was a historical figure. He was a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel, and he began his prophetic career as Elisha closed his. So as Elisha is moving off the scene, Jonah is moving onto the scene under King Jeroboam II, right? Now, and if you see in 25, 26, 27, Jonah's prophecy is preserved, and God preserves his prophecy to show you and to show me that Jonah is an authentic prophet, right? He's not some make-believe guy that somebody made up. Now, Notice where he's from in verse 25. I didn't know where he was from. I had to look it up. He's from Gath-Hefer, right? Gath-Hefer is near Nazareth. Gath-Hefer is in Galilee. Now, do you remember John chapter 7? Do you remember what those Pharisees said? Search the Scriptures, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They were wrong. They were wrong. They missed it. They missed the fact that there was a prophet that came out of Galilee. His name was Jonah, and he would be one of the greatest types of the resurrection that a lot of those guys weren't going to accept and believe. Out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Oh, I know at least one. His name is Jonah. And in Matthew chapter 12, if you want to go there, there's a passage here, Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So Jesus Christ is aligning himself with a prophet from Galilee, because Jesus Christ was a prophet from Galilee, right? He was called a Nazarene, right? He grew up in and around Nazareth, right? So uh, there he is, a prophet out of Galilee, a prophet from Galilee, and just like Jonah. Now, here's another thing why you know that Jonah is literal. Why would Jesus Christ point to a fable as a sign of his literal resurrection? When he's dealing with skeptics who aren't accepting the fact that the Son of Man, you know, they're looking for a sign, why would he give them a sign that's based on a dream or an allegory? No, Jonah literally went into that whale, literally did a whole bunch of other stuff we'll talk about tonight, and Jesus Christ literally went to hell and literally bodily rose again from the dead. That's got to be there. It's just like when, G, when the Bible says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The first Adam was made a living soul. The, second, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. In the same way, Adam has to be a literal figure that Jesus Christ replaced. Guess what? Jonah has to be a literal figure that Jesus Christ is typified by. All, right, all this stuff about figments and fairy tales and allegories, that's not Bible. The Bible doesn't read like that. You take the Bible literally until you can't. 
And when you read the history of Genesis or you read these accounts of Jonah, it's not like other religious literature that's like fuzzy and weird and like, you know, mystical. It's no, I went down here, I got in a ship, a sea rose up, this guy swallowed him. It's not meant or written with any kind of imaginative slant. It's meant to be taken literally. And the only reason we don't take it literally is not because of the Bible, it's because of our wicked hearts. It's because of the philosophical bias we had. Oh, I couldn't accept that. Why not? You'll accept you came from a rock five billion years ago. You'll accept that nothing can create everything. But you won't accept that there was a literal man named Adam that walked the Middle East 6,000 years ago. That's just as logical and more logical than thinking a big burp produced everything out of nothing. That's just a fact, Jack. I mean, that's, I don't know why that's so hard to see. You know, it's like the skeptic that says, well, I don't believe in anything I can't see. You're lying. You believe tons of things you can't see. You believe truth that you can't see. You believe electricity that you can't see. You believe all love that you can't see. You believe, honey, do you love me? Yes, I love you. You can't see it, but you believe your honey when she says, I love you. So that's what we call philosophical bias. You've got a veil over your heart that doesn't want to accept the truths. You pick and choose the truths that you want to or don't want to believe. So don't get too intimidated by your atheist friends. It's not that you have to give them more evidence. You've got to pray for their heart and aim for their soul. Give them a little bit of evidence, but don't get in this game where you've got to shoot bullets back at each other because you, they have an infinite supply of bullets because every bullet you give them that you think is a silver bullet because of the veil on their heart, they're just going to answer it another way. It's like the Grand Canyon, right? If you look at the Grand Canyon, you and I look at the Grand Canyon, we say, wow, look at what a lot of water did in a little bit of time. And they look at the same Grand Canyon and they say, wow, look at what a little bit of water did in a lot of time. It's because there's a veil on their heart that they don't want to believe. Romans, this was not in the notes at all. (laughs) It's something about the freedom out here. Romans 1 says, because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not a matter of, I can't believe that, I can't believe this. You don't want to. Keep going with me here before I launch out into song. Go back to Jonah chapter 4. All right, Jonah chapter 4. Here is a key verse. It really sums up what's going on in the book of Jonah. It speaks about Jonah here, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before from Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. That verse is key because that shows why Jonah didn't want to preach. And it shows you a key idea in the book of Jonah that God is the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that's a big truth in the book of Jonah we'll talk about later. And of course, Jesus Christ is pictured as Did I put it on the sheet? Yes. As the prophet like unto Jonah. That goes without saying. So you could see on your paper, and if you're watching online, you could see in the comments the basic breakdown of the book of Jonah. But let's get into some of the types of the book of Jonah. That's what I want to spend most of tonight on, Lord willing. uh, The types, the pictures in the book of Jonah. Right? We've got to have four of them. Right? The resurrected Christ, the nation of Israel, tribulation evangelists, and disobedient children of God. All typified by Jonah. We're going to spend time on the first two and just mention the last two. All right, let's go to Jonah chapter 1. Let's talk about Jonah as a type of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That's probably the most important one to get 
and the biggest. All right? Jonah 1.11. Now, we know Jonah's run away. There's a storm. They're getting ready to throw him in. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. Number one, in thinking about Jonah as a type of Christ's death and resurrection, please notice that Jonah offers himself as a sacrifice to save the men of the ship. Now, Jonah, types always break down. Jonah was a disobedient prophet. But in that moment right there, he's a type of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice to redeem those people and save those people on the ship, just like Jesus Christ. And look what their response is in verse 14. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. Please notice the men asked God not to charge them with innocent blood. That happened when Jesus Christ was crucified as well. You need some refreshers? I'll give them to you. Matthew 27, 19. Don't have to turn there. Pilate's wife says, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? Pilate. Matthew 27, 24. He says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Judas. Matthew 27, verse 4. Says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And those men didn't want innocent blood on their hands, just like the people surrounding Christ's death, his betrayers, his accusers, didn't want innocent blood on their hands. So there's another parallel. Let's look at verse 15. So they took up Jonah. Notice they lifted him up. Interesting. Jesus Christ was lifted up. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. They took up Jonah. They lifted him up. And it says, uh, and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Please notice, Jonah is sacrificed and the sea ceases from raging. Now, Jonathan Edwards, many years ago, wrote a very famous sermon in American history called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when I used to teach American literature, I made sure my students read it every year. Every year. <laughs> I don't teach it anymore, but I should just make them read it anyway. All right. But I used to make them read it. I used to go into it with them, break it down, talk to them about it, give them all the symbols and the metaphors. And they'd sit there like, ah. You know, it's fun to tell your kids, like, he holds you like a spider over the flames of hell. You know, and it's true. But in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards writes or says, the wrath of God is like great waters. That's how he describes the wrath of God, like a, like a storm, like a dam ready to break. And the sinner is just right there, unaware of the fact that these waters could flood them at any moment. And what did Jesus Christ do? 1 John 2, verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. You know what Jesus Christ's death did? Just what Jonah did. Jonah's death appeased that raging sea. Jesus Christ's death appeased the wrath of God, quelled all those waters that were building up like wrath against you. 
Jesus Christ put that fire out. He put those waters aside. It's like he stood up in the ship in that day and said, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. Do you remember when the calm came to your soul when you got saved? Does anybody remember? I remember when I, that calm came to my soul. But that not just the personal experience, the doctrinal truth. God was angry at you. You were at enmity with him, the Bible says. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, I'm just not a believer. No, you were lost. You were an enemy. The Bible says you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. This enmity there, this, like, like you were on opposite sides of a battle. And he, God was just, the Bible says he, would, he bent his bow. It says that in Psalm 11. If he turn not, he will bend his bow. If God doesn't repent, he can just bend that bow and shoot you and take you out. But God did give you a chance. And when you accepted Jesus Christ and that sacrifice was made, God said, okay, we can have a ceasefire. Yeah. Right? There could be peace. Right? What does it say? Is it Romans 5.1? Is it Romans 5? Don't go there. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He made peace where there was enmity. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh, Jonah 1.17. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's actually four things if you're a a note taker, there's four things that uh, he uh, prepares in the book of Jonah. He prepares a great fish in chapter one, a gourd in chapter four, a worm in chapter four, and a wind in chapter four. That's just a little something for you. It has nothing to do with my lesson. It wasn't even my notes, but I have it written there. I said, they'll think it sounds smart. All right. A, a great fish in chapter one, a gourd, a gourd in chapter four, verse six, a worm in chapter four, verse seven, and a wind in chapter four, verse eight. Uh, so three and one is different. So, but here he prepares a great fish, and Jesus and Jonah's soul goes to hell, like Jesus Christ's soul went to hell. That's not a controversial doctrine, right? That that's a that's a Bible doctrine. Jesus Christ's soul went to hell. His body went to the grave. His spirit returned to God, and his soul, the Bible says, was made an offering for sin. Isaiah 53, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You know what they did with offerings in the Old Testament? They burnt them. And so that soul went to hell. How long he went to hell, that's debatable. I don't know if you can nail that down. We know he was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How long he spent in each compartment, whether it was paradise and hell, I don't know. I honestly confess, I couldn't tell you for sure. But I know he went to hell. I know he went to hell. Uh... Notice in Jonah 1.17, he prepared a great fish. Okay. Matthew 12.40, Jesus Christ says, the great fish was a whale. Follow me now. A whale is a type of Leviathan, a great being that swims in the sea. Leviathan is a type of the devil. Isaiah 27, verses 1 and 2. Now stay with me now. Ready? Stay with me. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. All right? I don't have a board to write all this on. All right? But Matthew 25, 41, the Bible says that he throws some people into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the great fish was prepared. There's a connection there. Okay? Jonah 1.17 says he prepared the great fish. Now go to Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to pull it together. Go to Jonah 2, verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried, past tense, 
by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell cried I. I'm going to take that literally. And thou heardest my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep. That's not just a whale's belly. In the midst of the seas and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Is that just in the fish's belly? Go to Psalm 69. Hold your place in Jonah 2 and go to Psalm 69. You see what Jonah was saying there in Jonah 2? It's what the Spirit of your Savior says in Psalm 69. That cry is in Psalm 69. Those billows are in Psalm 69. Those deeps and those waters that are going over his soul, they're in Psalm 69, verse number 1. This is the Spirit of your Savior speaking through David. And he says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. Christ's soul went to hell. That's previewed by Jonah. Verse 2, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me, just like Jonah said. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. So Jonah in the whale is a preview of Christ in hell. Now, need a board. The whale is connected to Leviathan. Leviathan is connected to the devil. Jonah passes through and comes out. Jesus Christ passes through and comes out. Jonah in the whale is, yes, it's a preview of Christ's soul in hell, but it's also, in a way, a picture of Christ under the great deeps of Satan's domain. That he went down into Satan's domain to get some people out of that. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter um, 12. He says, How can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? Jonah passed through hell and rose again. Jesus Christ entered into Satan's domain and spoiled his goods. He led captivity captive and he got some people out of there, but he had to first enter into Satan's domain, enter into that belly, so to speak. All pictures here. Am I making sense so far? Okay, go to Jonah 2 verse 5. Just to show you again that Jonah is not just talking about being digested by a, a whale's belly. All right? Jonah 2, verse 5. Verse 4 is a good one, too. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Wasn't Jesus Christ separated from his father? Right? Wasn't he separated from his father? There, Jonah says, I'm cast out of thy sight. It's an interesting nugget there. Verse four, 5. The waters, see it now, compassed me about even to the soul. That's not his body getting drowned. That is soul getting overwhelmed, just like the spirit of your Savior in Psalm 69, who said, the waters are coming unto my soul. Your soul is not your body, and your body is not your soul. We got that? You're a body, you're a soul, and you're a spirit. You're a tripart being, just like your God is a triune God. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. 
and in Jonah chapter 2, verse number 7, he says, when my soul fainted within me. Jonah knew where his soul was. Jonah's soul was inside of him. His body might have been getting digested in the belly of that whale, but his soul was down in hell. Now, keep reading, right? Um, the depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. So this is, this is a spiritual flood Jonah's soul faced. This is not just a physical flood. He's talking about waters coming in unto his soul. Look at verse 6. Watch it now. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Jonah's soul faced something a lot worse than a great fish. You see that? Now, you could allegorize that and say, oh, that's just, the, that's just the, the whale's teeth that he went down, the whale went down. No, 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 no. Let's just compare Scripture with Scripture, shall we? Let's go to De- do some, some low-level flying. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number 22. Ah, as the good preacher used to say, nothing like a Bible to clear up a college education. <laughs> All right? Jonah says, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The bottoms of the mountains? Deuteronomy 32, 22. I might ruin this Sunday school lesson for kids everywhere, but Deuteronomy 32, 22. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Under the mountains is fire. Under the mountains is hell fire. Jonah said, I went down to the bottom of the mountains. You know where he went? He went to H-E double hockey sticks hell. Jonah went to hell. He's talking about, I'm going down to hell fire. Go to Job 28. Let's look at Job a little bit. My pastor, Mike Veach, used to always say that, you know, you want to look at things, and so many great doctrines show up in the book of Job. And Job didn't have a Bible. And he knew a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, that us with the Holy Spirit living inside of us in a finished revelation don't even scratch the surface of knowing. And Job knew a lot of stuff. Job 28, verse 5. As for the earth... Out of it cometh bread, and under it is turned up, as it were, fire. Job knew there was fire under the earth. Jonah said, I went under the mountains. Moses said, there's fire at the foundation of the mountains. Go to Job seventeen sixteen. Notice, none of them said just separation from God. He was burning, you know. Um, That lost man in Luke chapter 16, he was burning. He wasn't just separated from God. He was burning. He's still burning right now under your feet. If you could peel back the layers and look down a few hundred miles, I don't know how deep it is, whatever it is, you'd see that man still screaming and burning. You'd still see Pilate trying to wash that spot off his hands and free himself of the innocent blood. 
You'd still see all that stuff happen. They're still burning. That's making me sick right now. I know it's ruining your dinner. I know, but it's a, we got we to gotta get that. We got to get that. That these souls that we pass and that we know that are lost are not just unsaved, they're lost and they're going to burn. They're going to burn one day. And Job 17, 16 says, uh, yeah, 16. They shall, he's talking about the dead. They shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. So the soul is going to the bars of the pit. Didn't Jonah say the earth with her bars was about me? The bars of the pit? The body goes to the grave. Our rest together is in the dust. But somebody's lost soul goes down to the bars of a pit. Go to Job 38. I'm just stringing verses together. You disagree with me? That's fine. Job 38, verse 16. Excuse me, this is God speaking now, so... God knows what he's talking about. Look what God says. Look what God says to Job as he's trying to reprove him for, not, for doubting him. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Or hast thou walked in the search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? There are gates down there, brethren, and doors down there. The gates of death, it says. Now, God could say, have they been opened to you? Because guess what? Jesus Christ had them opened for him, right? But nobody else has gotten them open. That's scary, right? Gates and bars down there. Go to Psalm 107. Jonah went to hell. Jonah went to the pit. Jonah went to that prison in the heart of the earth. Psalm 107, verse number 10. He's speaking about, in Psalm 107, 10, such those that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death being bound in affliction and iron. There are souls down there bound in affliction and iron, kind of like gates. What did Jesus speak about in Matthew chapter 16? The gates of hell, right? Upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's not you. You never went to hell, church. Oh, the church will never go to hell. That's not what that's saying. He's talking about the rock in that passage. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because when that rock, my Savior, went to hell, guess what? He tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. The gates of hell couldn't prevail against the Savior, the rock, the deliverer. Hallelujah. Hey, 1 Peter 3.19 says there's spirits down there in prison. Prisons have gates. Prisons have bars. That's what's down there, folks. It's a prison. And in Revelation 1.18, you find out those gates have keys. Those gates can be locked. In Revelation 20, you find out those gates can be opened. It's just right in your Bible. But praise the Lord. Let's go back to Jonah chapter 3. 
I know it's a little bit heavy. I know a little bit of Bible study for you, but it's supposed to be Bible study. At least that's what we say on the... Um, Jonah chapter 3. I'm thankful, aren't you, that the Lord Jesus Christ got the keys of hell and of death on his way through. (laughs) He went through that domain. He went through the devil's domain there. He took that power. Keys represent authority. He took that authority from him. And now the Bible says he doesn't have the power of death anymore. Right? The devil had the power of death, Hebrews chapter 2 says, until Jesus Christ went down there and said, hey, buddy, give me the keys. As somebody said a long time ago, the devil's the only guy without the keys to his own store. He's got the keys. Jesus said, Revelation 1.18, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and of death. Why? He can open. He's the one that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Right? He's got the keys. Right? Jonah chapter 3. And look what happens right after this. He gets resurrected. Jonah chapter 3. After he gets resurrected, Jonah 3. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh. After Jonah is resurrected, he is sent to the Gentiles. And shortly after Jesus Christ's resurrection, he goes to the Gentiles. Here we are. So that's number one, Jonah Check. Let's talk about a second type. What am I doing here? I get blinded when I look at those lights. Wow. Um, Jonah is not only a type of Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. He is a type of also of Israel. You say, how could that be? Well, Jonah, like Israel, was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. You understand that? They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And they blow it the first time around. Like Jonah blows it the first time around. They drop the ball the first time around. Like Jonah flees the commission the first time around. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Let me just show you these things about Israel. Matthew 5. And I love Matthew 5, great verses in here, but let's take them doctrinally first. In Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, Jesus Christ is speaking to a Jewish nation and giving a Jewish nation a constitution of a Jewish kingdom that was coming to earth very imminently if those leaders had received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so in Matthew 5 to 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount... It's not about feeding the poor and helping your neighbor. It's about what's this kingdom going to be like when the kingdom comes. And in Matthew 5.13, he tells those Jewish people listening to him, there wasn't a Gentile probably in the audience. He says, ye are the salt of the earth. He says, all of you, Israel, are the salt of the earth. You know what Israel is supposed to be? Salt. You know what salt is supposed to do? Preserve life. Help heal. They had the word of God. They knew the God of Israel. They knew the true God. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. Salt to the earth. They dropped the ball. Verse 14, he says this also. Ye, that's all of you, Israel, are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He's talking about Jerusalem. Hey, the Jews had the oracles of God. They literally had the light of God's word. They were supposed to take that word and be a light to the nations around them. But they dropped the ball and forsook the commission like Jonah 
forsook the commission. 5.13, look at the middle of the verse. If the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? In other words, if the salt stops being salty, how do you salt the salt? You can't salt the salt, right? If there's no, the salt isn't doing the salt's job, who's going to do the salt's job? He says, look what it says. He says, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. And like Jonah cast into the sea, Israel was cast into a sea of nations and cast out of her privileged position of being God's chosen nation to be a light to the world. Temporarily, I know it's blindness in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, but when he dropped the ball, Jonah, he was cast into the sea and just taken up by that sea. And when Israel rejected the Messiah and refused to be that light that God wanted her to be, you know what he did? He dispersed her and cast her among the nations to be trodden under men. That's been Israel's history. They've just been trodden under men until 1948. Just wanderers and vagabonds in the earth. Interesting parallel. Why did Jonah resist the Lord's commission to be a light to the Gentiles? You ever think about that? Let's say why I don't think he resisted. Number one, it wasn't because of cowardice. Because Jonah was willing to be thrown into an ocean's tempest. So if you think Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites, this is the same guy that said, yeah, throw me into the tempest. I wouldn't get thrown in the tempest. I'd stay asleep in the bottom of the boat. (laughs) They'd be waking me up. I'd be like, no, I got the wrong guy. (laughs) Sorry, Jonah's not home. I'm I'm Jose. All right, but that's that's, that's a different story. All right, it wasn't because of cowardice, number two. It wasn't for a lack of sympathy for foreign missions. Okay, That, that makes nice preaching today. Oh, you got to have a heart for foreign missions, and you do. But that's not why Jonah didn't want to give them the God, give them the God's word. Number three, it wasn't because of his personal honor for being a prophet. It wasn't like I'm a prophet, and you know I'm not going to go talk to these Gentile dogs. No, it's very simple. Jonah disobeyed God out of a false patriotism and allegiance to his nation. He was too into the fact that he was an Israelite and lessened to the fact that he was God's prophet. Good preaching, brother. I mean, because I think every American needs to get that message. Sometimes I get way into being American and less into being a Christian. And Jonah got things a little, and I love my country. I will stand for the flag. I will, I will thank every soldier and every veteran I see. I think that's good. I think that's right. I think that's, there is a spiritual morality to that. I think that's the right thing to do. But I can't let my Americanism get beyond my Bible, where I become a Christian, an American before I'm a Christian. And Jonah became an Israelite before he became a prophet. And if he's a prophet, he says, you're going to preach to those people. You're supposed to preach to those people. And uh, Assyria, which was the Ninevites' base, Assyria was Israel's great enemy. Remember 721 B.C., they carried the, uh, the northern tribes into captivity. Jonah hated those Ninevites. Jonah hated those Assyrians. Jonah would like nothing more than to see them burn. And if he's going to go and preach to them, it might lead to their salvation. Ugh, he's not going to have that. I'm not going to go preach to them. 
They might get saved. They might repent. And they did, right? They, they did in a glorious way. They just gloriously repented before God. The whole nation, even the animals, were covered in sackcloth. It was a glorious revival. And Jonah's like, I told you so. I knew they were going to repent. Isn't that what you want, Jonah? No, he didn't want that. He see, he put being an Israelite ahead of being a prophet. And sometimes we've got to watch with our conservative values and our Americana and our Judeo-Christian heritage. Sometimes we want to see certain people get theirs. We want to see certain people judge. We want to see certain people get under God's thumb. And we don't want to reach out to them because... I don't know, I just want to be angry at them. But we've got to be careful that we never let our conservatism, Americanaism, or any of those isms get ahead of the fact that we've been called to go and preach, like the brother said on Sunday morning. Right? Um, that's, that's our calling, that's our mission. And patriotism for Israel has to be balanced by the Holy Spirit and God's Word, because patriotism for Israel is even out of whack today. I mean, you got people that have forgotten God, and they're zealous for Israel. I mean, that, that, that gets out of whack, too. Right? There's all kinds of wacky stuff when it comes to feeling about Israel and the nation and stuff like that. So it's got to be tempered through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Um, same thing for being American. Right? Your American patriotism has to be tempered by the Holy Spirit and God's Word. Because those leaders that we have, they're as wicked as scum. I mean, they're wicked as hell. I mean, and then you'd be told they're wicked as hell. Not they got different political positions as I do. That's not the point. You're wicked. You're thumbing your nose at God. You got to repent. And uh, we can never let our American patriotism get in the way of what God's told us to go and stand and speak. Look at Isaiah chapter 60, now that I've gotten a few strikes. All right. Oh, sorry. Isaiah 60. But what happened to Jonah? Jonah got a second chance. What's going to happen to Israel? Israel's going to get a second chance. In Isaiah 60, look at verse 1. This is a prophecy about Israel being restored. It's God speaking to his nation, speaking to Jerusalem. I'm speaking about his people going up to Jerusalem. He says, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. See that? What a blessing. What a a miracle. What an amazing, amazing scene, an amazing, amazing moment. Because like Jonah... Israel will be cast up on the earth to bless the whole world again. Like Jonah was cast up on the earth to go be a blessing to those Ninevites. See? Now the third one I'm just going to mention, right? Third one. Jonah could also picture some of those tribulation evangelists that will be preaching the gospel of the kingdom in the tribulation. That's, that, that's another picture. And then lastly, spiritually... Jonah pictures, and it's a lesson on, the disobedient child of God. We'll talk about that in a second, right? Uh, His life, his conduct, his chastening, and his restoration, that's a great spiritual picture. So let's go back to Jonah and look at some of those things as we circle the wagons here. Jonah chapter 1 again. We'll finish in Jonah here. Well, we're going to do Jonah. We'll go to a few other spots. Jonah chapter 1. Let me give you some big ideas from the book of Jonah. I got two. 
Two big ideas from the book of Jonah that will piggyback off this disobedient child of God point here. First big idea in the book of Jonah. Ready? Say amen if you're ready. You can't frustrate the purposes of God. You can't stop, I should say, or thwart the purposes of God. You could resist them, but you're never going to stop them. That doesn't mean God is sovereign, you know, because you can resist his will and perish, but his will is still going to march on. See Jonah 1 verse 3? Jonah's got a commission in verse 2. Arise, go, and cry against it. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. You can run from God. You can. Jonah did. You might even find a ship ready to take you away. That's why circumstances are a very tricky thing when you make decisions. Because Jonah's running away, and Jonah like shows up right there, and he says, oh, there's a ship here. He must have thought, wow, what an open door. I guess God really wants me to go this way. It wasn't an open door. It was a dead end. The circumstance was not the, what God wanted. So you got to be very careful about circumstances. I know we look at them, but circumstances aren't your primary thing to judge whether you should make that decision by. The Word of God is first. Maybe the counsel of some trusted elders is second. Then circumstances. Then the peace of God. But circumstances are tricky. Just because that girl started talking to you, that old friend started calling you up again, doesn't mean God wants you to talk to those people. Even though the circumstances, or the guy gives you that raise, or they want you to have that promotion, that's going to take you out of church. Oh, that circumstance is tricky. Right? What does the Word of God have to say on it? That's the first litmus test. Jonah 1.4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. Please notice also, oh yes, yeah. Jonah, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Can I tell you, you can run away. You can run from God. You have a free will. But the Lord is also allowed to pursue you like he pursued Jonah. And he can throw you into a storm. He can turn your life upside down to the point where your ship is about to be broken. Because you're a vessel. You're that ship. He can, he'll, he can bring you to the point where he's going to break you. He's either going to make you or he's going to break you. You run from him. You see the direction Jonah went in verse 3? He went down to Joppa. Because when you flee from the presence of God, which is foolish... Because Psalm 139 says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Right? You can't run away from God. It's like trying to run away from oxygen. Try it. You'll die. Right? So you could try to run from the presence of the Lord, but he could throw you into a storm, put you in a pig pen where you're feeding on husks, or be so troubled that you can't speak. Like David in the psalm said, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Right? Troubles. Sometimes waters are likened to troubles. Even Shakespeare picked up on that, right? 
Hamlet said, shall I take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them, right? Troubles are like those mighty waters just fermenting. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. And like those waters constantly fermenting and dragging up the dirt, guess what? God will raise a storm in your life that'll just raise up all kinds of dirt and doubt. And he told his people, Israel, in Deuteronomy 28, 28, well, if you turn from me, your life shall hang in doubt. And you're given over to madness. Because why? Because you're just trying to run from God. Don't run from God. Get close to God. He's got, he gives great hugs. <laughs> Get close to God. Um, Jonah 1.3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. And, and those of us that have been stupid enough to do it, I don't know why I sometimes take the glasses off. I'm not sure. It's like a tick. I don't know. But anyway. Um, maybe it has some kind of effect, you know. Yeah. But anyway. I had no idea what I was going to say. No clue what I was going to say. Yeah, those of, us that been, those of us that have been stupid enough to try to run from the presence of God, regret every second of it. Got our butts whooped, so our lives get turned upside down, had no peace, had a fret, had a nervous whatever, just did not have any goodness, no smile of God. When God removes that smile from your life, you know when it's been there and when it's not there. And it's a scary thing. I don't ever want to go back there. That actually, the thing that scares me more than anything in the world is God not talking to me. It really makes me so scared that God would just turn his face or just, you know, I know he never leaves me nor forsakes me, but that he would just like step back. Just scares me to death. In verse 3, it says, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish so he paid the fare thereof. If you try to run from the presence of the Lord, you will pay the price. Jonah paid the price. Say, how did Jonah pay the price? Well, you didn't see what he looked like when he came out of that whale's belly. Jonah paid the price in this life His body was scarred from that whale's belly. You think that flesh going into all those gastric juices and those things burning his skin, you think he looked like he did on the way out? No. He was irreparably changed. And man, you start to do some things, you run from God, you get some diseases, you get some illnesses, you get some wrinkles, you get some age. Guess what? You could hurt your body. You could do some things to yourself in this life that you'll never be able to recover from when you run from God and go into the far country. Like Jonah was forever changed and scarred because he ran from God. He said, hey, Jonah, why you, why'd you lose all your hair? Why do you look at your face went through like a, like a torch like that? Because I ran from God. you got some people in the life right now that ran from God for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you could see it in their face. They look weathered. They look aged. They look just worn. Why? Because they just ran from God for so long. And Jonah paid in the next life. His soul went to hell as a disobedient prophet under the law. So he paid in both spots. Now, he's an exception. He got resurrected, but he paid in this life, and he paid in the next life. And you and I, we may not pay. We'll pay in this life. We may face problems and difficulties and judgment in this life, and we can lose rewards and face shame in the next life. Payday someday, my friends. No, you know, what does the Bible say in 1 John? I'm going to mess it up. Some men's sins are open beforehand, 
going before to judgment, and some may follow after. Likewise, the good works of some are manifest, and those that are otherwise cannot be hid. I messed it up a little bit. But hey, some people, just you see God squeezing them. And some people, you don't see God squeezing them, but that doesn't mean that God's not going to get them. And some people, you never see God blessing them. It looks like God's never taking care of them, and they're serving Him with their whole heart. Hey, God knows how to settle accounts. God will settle accounts. And uh, when He settles accounts, you won't be able to hide the glory that will follow. They that are otherwise, the ones that don't get the blessings down here for serving God, they cannot be hid. That virtuous woman says, it says of the virtuous woman, let her own works praise her in the gates. When she sweeps through those gates, her works are going to follow her and reward her. The purpose of God is like a river. And rivers only flow in one direction. Now you have a choice, right? You can resist the river and struggle and perish and take it on the chin because you're just trying to swim against the stream. Or you can submit to the river, go with the flow, and enjoy the ride. You cannot frustrate or overturn the purpose of God. He's going to get glory out of you somehow. You might as well enjoy the ride and not be a bad example in a sermon somewhere, be something that somebody could look to as a blessing, right? This has nothing to do with Calvinistic stupidity. Okay, that's a doctrinal term. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, you can't resist God. <laughs> right? This is saying you got a will. You could go with the flow. Or you could resist God. The choice is yours. And finally, second big idea. Go to Jonah 2.9. Jonah 2.9? Yes. The God of the Bible is the God of the Jew and of the Gentile. That's the second big idea. Notice what Jonah says when he's just gotten yacked out. He says, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that, I have that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And we could preach on that all night. Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? Salvation comes from God. If you got saved, it's because God saved you. The church didn't save you. You didn't save you. The tract didn't save you. The prayer didn't save you. Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, saved you as a response to your call. Anybody saved today? Salvation is of the Lord. Right? That doesn't mean you're a robot and God overpowered your will and made you believe. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, I'm regenerated. I want to believe now. I feel like reading the Bible. I was dead, and I had no taste for God, and now I suddenly want the Scriptures. Oh, let me read this tract. Oh, I'm going to believe. That's Calvinism. Calvinism says that God overpowered you he overpowered you, regenerated you before you got saved so that you could believe the gospel. That is the most backwards, idiotic logic I've ever heard in my life. God has to save you before he saved you. Right? Because you, well, you, dead men can't see and dead men can't believe. And dead men don't want to listen to any of your garbage anymore, guys. All right? God, you have a will. I don't know how it works, but God tugs on that will. You resist or you submit, and then God gives you his salvation. Right? But you've got to yield. Now go to John 4, 22. 
I don't know why I keep getting on that. I'm sorry. It's just something about it that just bothers me so much. All the big words they use and the fair speeches to deceive the hearts of the simple. It just strips my gears. I don't know. John 4.22. Salvation of the Lord. And in John 4.22, Jesus says this to this um, woman of Samaria. You worship, you know not what? We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, right? Unto them were committed the oracles of God. Every writer in your Bible was a Jewish writer, right? It doesn't say salvation is by the Jews, for the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. We got in on something that they gave us that came through that line. Your Savior, if salvation is of the Lord and salvation is of the Jews, that means the Lord had to become a Jew to save you. See that? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Jews. Deduction. The Lord became a Jew, manifest in the flesh, so that you could have eternal life, so that he could bring salvation to the world, both Jew and Gentile. And we'll finish at Romans chapter 3, verse 29. We get that. We had that at the fair last week. Somebody said to us... uh, Oh, no, and it says, you probably had this said to you too. Oh, no, that, 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 that track isn't for me. I'm Jewish. You know, you don't want to be a jerk, but you're kind of like, Aah. right? Romans 3.29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So the God of Israel promised to be a light to the Gentiles and salvation unto the ends of the earth. He said in Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Jonah resisted that, and you and I should never resist that. We give the gospel to as many as, to whosoever will, because that's the dispensation we're in right now. God has just given out to everybody, anybody, and in every dispensation... God is always looking at somebody that's looking for him. Whether it was under the law and a Syrophoenician woman comes and falls down at Jesus' feet and begs him, he says, woman, great is thy faith, be it so unto thee. He'll take care of her. And it's just like it'll be in the tribulation when God's dealing with the Jews primarily, when there's some Gentiles that fear God, there's going to be a way for them to get in as well. Everybody that's looking for God, God is looking for them. Doesn't matter where it is. He's the God of the Jew and the Gentile, and he has a focus at different times. But we've got to get this thing out of our mind that God is like, I'm only ministering to the Jews here, and I'm only ministering to the Gentiles here. That is not the way to think. He has a focus and an emphasis. The kingdom of heaven is primarily Jewish. But there are Gentiles that get into the millennium. A lot of them. So God's always making a way. God always makes a way for the Jew and the Gentile because he's the God of the Jew and the Gentile who wants to save the Jew and the Gentile. Praise the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you tonight.